Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, our text this morning, or the last little bit of the 13th chapter of Romans, verses 11 through verse 14. And if you picked up a Bible from either of the tables, that's on page 948. I want to ask one more time, too, if you're able, if you would stand once more so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. She remains standing as we pray. Father, we want to be a congregation that obeys this text. We want to be a people who are holy as you are holy. Father, so inasmuch as you will use your word this morning and the preaching of your word to bring us to that end, we ask that you would. Give us every grace and every mercy necessary to to be further conformed to the image of Christ. If there are things that we need to put off, to cast out, to make no longer any more provision for in our lives, give us the strength to do that. And then give us the strength to pursue righteousness. And we ask this for our good and for your honor as we bear witness to you in this world. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Paul makes an astounding statement in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. this great chapter on the resurrection. The Corinthians were uh, being told the resurrection had already happened and consequently denying any future resurrection of the bodies to come. And so Paul wrote this to them in that verse. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are to be of all people most to be pitied. Now, before we contemplate why well, I think that's such an astounding statement, let's just make sure we understand what Paul's saying. What Paul says when he wrote that to the Corinthians is he's saying this, The Christian hope is that one day we're going to have even our bodies themselves made perfect. We're going to be, if the Lord returns while we're living, instantly glorified and perfected and changed. If we've died before the Lord returns, our bodies are going to be raised from the dead. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, made perfect. So what Paul is saying is, as we in this lifetime watch ourselves and then feel even in our own bodies them wasting away from cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, general corruption to the body, on and on and on. We know, we know the grave will not be the last word. 
But what Paul is saying is, if that weren't true, if, if, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if the grave really were the last word, that were just it, you died and that's it, period, then Paul says, Christians, you and I, we're to be of all the people who are on the planet more to be pitied than anyone else. He's saying the whole world, if there's no resurrection coming, they should feel sorry for us. But why? The reason, of course, that the whole world should pity us if there's no such a thing as the resurrection to come is because you and I make decisions, oftentimes costly decisions in this life because we believe the resurrection's coming. You and I, for example, we work hard to earn money, in part so that we can give sizable portions of that away for the good of the kingdom. Why? Because we believe that we're actually storing up treasure for ourselves on the other side of the resurrection. We make decision to deny ourselves fleshly desires and pleasures, however fleeting they may be, because we believe there are greater pleasures to come at the Lord's right hand. We even pick up and move ourselves leaving friends and family, if so necessary, in order to go to other peoples who have not yet heard so that they might hear the gospel and we might preach the gospel. Indeed, that churches might be planted. We make all kinds of decisions intentionally putting ourselves in a place basically of inviting suffering into our lives in obedience to Christ because we believe the resurrection is coming. And what Paul is saying is, if that resurrection then doesn't come, if it's not coming, if that's not true, if the grave's the last word, man, the whole world should pity us for the way we're living our lives. But you and I know the resurrection is coming. And it is sure. And it is certain. And just as with Jesus Christ, so with us, the grave will not be the last word. And that's what makes 1 Corinthians 15, 19, I think, such an astounding statement. Because if Paul, by saying, if there's no resurrection, we're all to be most pitied, if that's true, then the converse of that is also true. In other words, if that's true, the astounding nature of that statement is Paul saying this, because the resurrection is true, every costly decision you've made in your life is utterly worth it. In fact, he says it more strongly. Whenever he compares what's going on in this life with the other side of the resurrection, the language he uses is almost one of, you can't even compare the two. He writes earlier in this letter, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So my point is this, if that's true, if the eternity to come is so far more glorious than anything we've known in this life, that it would make any suffering in this life not even worth putting on the scales with it beyond all comparison then the fact that the resurrection's coming and that it's going to be glorious and that eternity really is eternal, it will last forever, that's got to impact the way we live now 
right? If that's true, we've got to weigh that in the balances of our decisions. And brothers and sisters, it is most certainly true. Just as a test case, ask yourself this. If you knew the return of Christ and the coming resurrection of the dead were just right around the corner, how would it impact you? Now, by asking that question, I'm not suggesting we all quit our jobs and go out and look at the sky. Paul rebuked the Thessalonians for that kind of thinking, didn't he? Nor am I saying we don't need to be prepared for the long haul. Remember the parable that Jesus uh, gave of those uh, virgins who are waiting for the appearance of the bridegroom? And some of them didn't have enough oil. They weren't ready for the long wait. They had to go back into town. That was Jesus saying, I want you to be ready for the long haul. But it is true that knowing the resurrection is coming and that it is sure and that it is certain, it's got to impact how we live. And if we knew it were right around the corner, my guess is we would all live a little more intentionally, perhaps, than we are now. That's what our text is about this morning. The coming resurrection demands that you and I live more soberly, more intentionally in this life. This is what Paul tells us this morning. He starts our text um, simply saying, I want you to know the return of Christ is imminent. The return of Christ is at hand. Here we go. And that's got to impact how we live. So that's what I want to lay it out, just a truth and then two exhortations this morning. And, and, and the truth that I want to lay out is this, point number one in the sermon, the imminent nature of eternity should empower us to radical, loving obedience. The imminent nature, that is the fact that eternity is set to arrive any moment. The imminent nature of eternity should empower us to radical, loving obedience. This is where Paul starts our text this morning. Do you remember last week, he was saying that you and I need to pursue loving one another and and let that be something that we're about and that we do that lasts forever, even into eternity. And the reason that we love one another forever is because by coming and living and dying and being raised for us, Jesus Christ has basically put us in a place where we owe others love. We've been shown infinitely glorious love, and therefore we owe it to show others love. And that's a debt we can never repay. It's going to last into eternity. And so what Paul said in the text we looked at last week was, owe one another love, love one another, in part love one another, because when you love, you fulfill the law. You want to know a reason why you need to be walking in loving obedience? Because if you do, you fulfill God's law. What he's going to do in our text this morning is say, I want to give you another reason. Not only by walking in loving obedience are you fulfilling the law, but I want to give you one more reason. That's why he begins verse 11, besides this, or literally, and this. And there's another reason, and there's another cause for why you should walk in loving obedience. And here's what he writes. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. What Paul's doing with all of this language of day and night light and darkness, is he's using them as metaphors talking about this age 
and the age to come. You remember this all the way back in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, that begin our kind of practical living section of the book of Romans. Paul began by saying, I don't want you to be conformed to this world. Literally, that word world there was, I don't want you to be conformed to this age. It's just a quick refresher. The Bible pictures this time until the coming of Christ as an age, and then the time after the coming of Christ as another age. So the Bible will sometimes say, this age and the age to come. And this age, this time, all the way up until the return of Christ, is pictured as a time when we see corruption and sin and the rule of Satan and the reign of death in this age. It's everywhere. In fact, this age is, is, is such an evil reality that Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul will speak of Jesus Christ coming to deliver us from this present evil age. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is called the God of this age. So if you, as a believer, look out at the world and say, I feel like there is just constant sin and corruption and death, all around me, then you're sensing something that the Bible says is true. We live in this present evil age where we see the reign of death. And yet, there's a day coming. The age to come. When Jesus Christ returns, not only will it mark the end of the rule of Satan fully and finally, not only will it mark the end of sin that you and I will never feel within ourselves temptation to sin again, but it also marks the end of the reign of death. Death will be no more, and you and I will be raised in perfectly glorified, resurrected bodies. That's the age to come. When everything is glorious and perfect and right and true. And what Paul's doing then is he's using this metaphor. He's talking about this age, this present evil age, in terms of darkness, in terms of the night. And he's talking about that age to come. And he's using the metaphors of light and day. And so with that said, listen to what he says again. He's going to make two points. One, he's just going to say, on the one hand, just Practically speaking, we're closer to the time of our resurrection than we ever have been. Now, this this statement in some ways is saying no more than my brother-in-law has a shirt that he wears. And in fact, the last time he visited, he was wearing this shirt. And uh, he walked out of his bedroom. Uh, They were staying with us. And he walked out of his bedroom. He was wearing this shirt that said, this is the oldest I've ever been. Now, part of that truth is what Paul says in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, the hours come for us to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In part, that's just what Paul's saying. Of all the generations who've ever lived, no one's been closer to the return of Christ than us in this moment. That's just a practical statement of time. But he says something else too. In verse 12, he says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. What he's saying is, the reign of this age is coming to an end. And that age to come, not only is it basically ready to to, to come at any moment, there's nothing that keeps the Lord Jesus Christ from coming right now. 
But this age, that age to come, has already begun to invade this age, the Holy Spirit in our lives. So basically what Paul is saying is, because you know the age to come is just set to take over at any moment, and the end of this age is set to be done with altogether, Satan and sin and death, no more. That could happen at any moment with the return of Christ. He's saying, that's got to affect how we live. Basic, specifically, what he says there, this calls us to wake from sleep, to wake up. Now, I could just run with that, and I, I could just say that and preach a whole sermon. Guys, because the age to come is coming, the resurrection is coming, eternity is coming, and it's going to come here any moment, wake up and let's live like those who are awake. And I think that, that this sounds very poetic, but, but you would probably be asking the question, what do you mean by that, Lee? What do you mean to wake up? Well, I think we're helped by a parallel text where Paul says almost the same thing. So hold your place here in Romans 13, and I want to encourage you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which if you're using a Bible from either information table is on page 987. And what you're going to find in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 2, is that Paul is using all the same imagery. But what he does is he helps us define that exhortation, wake up. Here's what he says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that is the return of Christ, eternity, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. What he's saying is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, unbelievers will be judged. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. That is, we belong to the age to come. We're not characterized by the things that characterize this age. Verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What's helpful, I think, about that parallel in 1 Thessalonians is that Paul uses the exact same language he does here. Because we belong to the day and not to the night, let's not sleep and let's wake up. But when he says wake up, he gives a further description. He says it twice, be sober. And if you remember two weeks ago when Aaron was preaching in 1 Peter, Peter made that same exhortation, let us be sober, sober-minded. And what Aaron said then was that when Peter says, be sober-minded, he means, let's be intentionally focused in our thinking. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is, unbelievers are living in this world, walking through it as if they're asleep. You might say sleepwalking, right? They're living in this world, simply following the course of this world, simply following the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2, simply carrying out the desires of the flesh, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They're just sleepwalking through life and where the culture takes them, this culture of Satan and sin and death, where it takes them, they go, as if they're sleepwalking through life. But Paul's saying, you and I can't do that. 
you and I get to wake up out of that slumber, wake up out of that dazed disillusionment, and be sober thinking, and be intentional thinking. What Paul is saying is that you and I have to live intentionally. We have to make intentional decisions about how we think, and what we say, and what we do. And we think and we live intentionally because we don't belong to this age. We belong to the age to come. Well, then you can ask this question. Okay, Paul, fine. If, if, if you're saying that, that we as believers need to think and live in a very intentional way, what's that look like? That brings us to our second two points, two exhortations. And the first one, the second point of the sermon is this. Cast off and make no provision for sinful living. Cast off and make no provision for sinful living. Paul's now going to define what he means by intentional thinking and intentional living in terms of doing something negatively and doing something positively. What I mean by negatively and positively is Paul saying, don't do this or get rid of this. And then positively, he's saying, do this, add this. But he mixes those up, the positive and negative exhortations in the text. So I want to first just deal with the negative ones. And what he says in general is, cast off, cast off sinful living and make no provision for sinful living. Here's what he says in verses 12 through 14. Now, I want to read for us, again, the negative ones, what he says we need to get rid of. So verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. This age is about to come to an end. So then, here's what he says. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness. That's the first negative exhortation. Cast off the works of darkness. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Let us, he's going to state something positively, walk properly as in the daytime, but let's take the negative. Verse 13. Let us walk, now skip over to the negative. Let us walk not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And then in verse 14, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So here's, here's the negative exhortations he gives us. Cast off the work of darkness. Don't walk in orgies and drunkenness. Don't walk in sexual morality. Don't walk in sensuality. Don't walk in quarreling and jealousy. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In other words, what Paul's saying is cast off and make no provision for sinful living in this life. Now, brothers and sisters, I think this is a very timely text for us in large measure because there is a segment of our membership in college students who are about to leave us. Now, I'm not only speaking to college students here. I'm speaking to all of us. But one of the things I think and one of the reasons I wanted us to pray for college students this morning is One of the things that can happen in the life of a college student is he or she comes to college and they can surround themselves with godly people and they can build accountability structures in their life. One of the interesting things about college living is that you're able to live in ways that you'll probably never be able to live like that again. You're able to surround yourself, for example, with three or four Christian brothers and live with them and let them hold you accountable, three or four Christian sisters. Let them live with you and hold you accountable. That gets harder to do as you go on through life. And so it may be, it may be that this week, as many college students leave us, that what this week marks is basically them walking away from an environment in their lives where they have all kinds of structure and accountability. It's now walking out into a situation where they're going to face some of these challenges 
without that same structure and without that accountability in our lives. But again, they're not the only ones. You and I all the time are faced with the temptation of sinful living. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to cast that off and I want you to make no provision for it in your life. And that is such a helpful exhortation that Paul gives us to make no provision for it in our lives. I was in a conversation one time with the other pastors, and I can't remember which one of them said this, so let me just credit all of them. It wasn't me. It was one of them. And one of them noted, and I thought this was so insightful, that sometimes when we tackle sin, we like to cut off most of our avenues for sin. Most of them. So, so you might compare it to the guy that decides he wants to quit smoking. And he knows he has a pack of cigarettes stuffed in his top drawer. He has a pack of cigarettes, you know, sitting on the coffee table. He has a pack of cigarettes uh, in his study. And he decides, you know what, I'm going to get rid of the cigarettes that are here. And I'm going to get rid of the cigarettes that are over there. I'm going to get rid of the cigarettes that I have here. And I'm going to throw them all in the trash. While all the time he knows I also have a pack of cigarettes in the glove box of my car. And if he gets rid of all of them. But the cigarettes in the gold box of his car, is this a guy that seriously wants to stop smoking? No, this is a guy that wants to smoke less. Sometimes we approach sin the exact same way. We decide there are a lot of avenues in my life where I pursue this particular sin that I'm struggling with. And we decide, you know what, I want to cut off this avenue for it and I'm going to cut off this avenue for it, and I'm going to cut off this avenue for it. But I think I'm going to leave that avenue in place. And what one of our pastors noted one day as we were discussing and praying for the members of the church is sometimes we make a plan to fight sin, and intentionally we plan to be about 80% successful. And that is not how the Scripture works. Paul says, I want you to make no provision for the flesh. He says, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that as Christians, drunkenness is unacceptable. As Christians, living in sexual immorality is unacceptable. Living in sensuality, exposing yourself to pornography in any form, on your phone, through your Netflix account, whatever, it's unacceptable. And Paul says, jealousy and quarreling. It's unacceptable. We need to think of these things the same way we would think of running out in front of a car that's driving down the street. There's a reason why you don't do that. It's because you know, I cannot allow that. Well, brothers and sisters, Paul says, you need to think of sin in even more severe ways. These things are not acceptable. Let us walk not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul is saying we need to take radical measures of cutting off avenues of sin in your life. The examples Jesus used was pluck out your eye and cut off your hand if you have to. But again, what he was saying is we must take radical measures You and I, as believers, need to take our cues from the Bible as to what is okay and acceptable for Christians to do and not the world. Just this morning, as I was looking over this text and and praying again for the sermon, one of the things that just came across my mind is 
Is it the greatest blight in our generation of believers living now that we take our cues from the culture about what's acceptable for us to watch? I fear that a hundred years down the road, believers could look back at us and say, how in the world did they think that was okay? And it may be because you and I simply listen to what the world says is okay. Or maybe we hear what they say and we peel back just a little bit. When the Bible says, don't make any provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't do it. My basic approach, when, when, when somebody has asked me, how, how is it that I need to tackle this sin? I think in terms of tackling sin as a two-step approach. And the first one's this. Just what I've said here. Cast off and make no provision for a sinful living. So if you're tackling pornography, for example, let's try to cut off every avenue. If you need to get rid of your smartphone, get rid of your smartphone. It's better to avoid hell with no smartphone than to go there with your smartphone in hand. Do you need to put a password on your Netflix account? Let someone else rather put a password on it than, than let them do it. Right? Just, just take whatever steps. So the first step, I think, in us fighting sin is this element of fasting. It is this element of starving sin in our lives. Starve sin out and starve ourselves from sin. Almost like cultivating a diet. If, if, if I want to stop eating sweets, then there needs to be a time when I say, I can't keep cultivating in my taste bud and in my appetite a desires for sweets. I can't say that I'm going to go back to sweets and I'm going to eat them after every meal all the time telling myself, I want to stop eating sweets. There has to be a time that I cut that off from my life that I say I'm going to begin to starve my appetite that cries out for sweets, and I'm going to say no more. Something's going to change, and my nature is going to change. I'm going to stop crying out for sweets after a while. That's the way we tackle sin. I'm going to cut off these avenues. I'm going to make no provision for my flesh to gratify its sinful desires. I'm going to starve that sin, and I'm going to starve myself from that sin. That's step one. That's what I call fasting. Fast from sin. But there's a second side that's equally as important. You cannot only fast. There's a second side, and that brings us to the third point of the sermon, Paul's second exhortation, and it's this. Set your mind on and live out faith in Christ, hope in Christ, and love for Christ and others. Set your mind on and live out faith in Christ, hope in Christ, and love for Christ and others. Now, let me see if I can explain why I'm making that point the way that I'm making it from this text. Paul has given his negative exhortations, cast off, make no provisions for this, but he also lists a lot of positive exhortations, doesn't he? So, so again, go back to verses 12 through 14. This time, instead of noting the negative ones, Cast off work of darkness. Let us not walk in orgies and drunkenness, etc., etc. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Look at what he says positively. Verse 12. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So he says not only cast off work of darkness, but positively. Put on the armor of light. Verse 13. Positively. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not doing these things. And then verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's not only in Paul's language this putting off, but there's also putting on. 
Not only let us not walk in these ways, but possibly let us walk properly. But what, what does Paul mean then when he uses phrases like, put on the armor of light, or put on Jesus Christ? I mean, again, that imagery can be powerful, but practically, what's he saying? How do you wake up in the morning and put on the armor of light? How do you wake up in the morning and put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in one sense, I don't think he's saying much different than what he said in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, going back to the beginning of this section of the book of Romans, he basically used Romans 12, 1 through 2 as his thesis for everything that followed. In other words, I'm going to say in two verses what I'm going to flesh out in five chapters. And what he said in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, don't be conformed to this age. That's the same thing he's saying now. Put off the works of this age. Those who are unbelievers, they're living like this age in darkness and in night. But let's not do that. Let's not be conformed to this age, but let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I think Paul's saying the same thing here. By putting on the light, by putting on Jesus Christ, he's saying, let's submit our minds and meditate on the truth of Scripture. What does God say is true? What does God say is good? What does God say is glorious? And what does God command us to do? What he's saying is, submit ourselves to the truth of Scripture. But I think he's also, we can also add one more element to that. Because again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, that parallel text where Paul uses all the same imagery and says almost all the same things. Here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 8. Now again, you already turned there, so you need not do it again. But here's what Paul says. When he's paralleling the section here, verse 7 Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, since we belong to the age to come, let us be sober, intentionally focused thinking and living. Let us be sober, and now he's going to describe what that looks like. He writes, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he's using the same imagery. It's as if we're, we're putting on armor and arming ourselves. Put on the armor of light. Put on Jesus Christ. Put on these things to, so that, that you can go to war in this age, so that you can both be protected and be an offensive individual in this age of darkness. But instead of saying, put on light or put on Jesus Christ, there, Paul says, let's put on faith and put on hope, put on love. In other words, I think one of the key ways to fight sin is not only to cut off avenues, make no provision for it, fast from it, but is also to feast on all that we have in Christ. And I think that's what Paul's saying when he says, put on faith and hope and love. Brother and sister, it's not only important for you and I to wake up and make sure we've cut off avenues for potential sin in our lives, but also that we put on faith, that by faith we take hold of everything we have and who we are in Jesus Christ. By hope. We know in hoping that everything that Jesus Christ has promised us is sure and certain. And love. We both remember the love that God has for us in Christ, love that He will not allow us to be separated from. 
and let that produce in us love for Christ. In other words, this faith and this hope and this love, I think, are all Christ-directed. By faith, remember what you have in Christ. Hope, remembering what you have in Christ. Love, remembering that He loves you and who you are in Jesus Christ. And let that be like an armor for you. So, so in other words, think of putting off and putting on as casting off and making no provision, fasting, but then turning to Christ and realizing and appropriating all you have in Him, feasting. You might think of it this way. Remember the prophet Jeremiah, who, who the Lord said through him to the people, when they sinned, he said, you're actually committing two evils. It's not just that you've gone to these broken cisterns that have dirty, contaminated water, and you're drinking out of those broken cisterns. That's part of the evil. But there's another evil, he said, you've done. You actually have forsaken the fountain of living waters. So what Jeremiah said to the people is, here's what you're doing, get this imagery. It's like there's a fountain of pure spring, perfect water, cold and flowing, that would satisfy and quench your thirst. And what you've done is you've said, no, thank you. I'm going to drink out of that muddy, dirty, nasty water in that broken cistern that's contaminated. He said, that's what you're doing. So let's now think about sober-minded, intentional, focused living as doing the opposite. Brothers and sisters, let's cut ourselves off from that broken sister. See, I'm not going to go back there. I'm going to recognize sin for what it is. In the moment, it can appear like it's this beautiful pleasure, but it is fleeting. John Piper compares sin to, 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 it can appear like a diamond on the end of a necklace, and you take this huge diamond, and it looks so glorious, and you put it around your neck, but then once you have it around your neck, you look down, and that diamond has turned into a huge cockroach. I don't have to tell you that's what sin's like. If you're a believer, you know that's what sin's like. You've been there, and you've done it, and you have felt the regret. And so what Paul is saying is, let's just cut off that avenue to go in and drinking that contaminated, nasty, broken cistern water. Let's fast from that, cast that off, make no provision for it. But brothers and sisters, let's also say, there's something within me that is craving. That's why I've been going to that broken cistern. But my craving and my hunger and my thirst and my cry for satisfaction... It's found in the living water. It's found in Jesus Christ. It's found in God whom we can taste and see that he is good. That we can enjoy and and, and delight ourselves in the pleasures at his right hand that are forevermore. So what I'm saying is this, let's both cast off and make no avenue for the provision of the flesh, but let's also find ourselves feasting on Christ. Brothers and sisters, in your joy, run to Christ. When you long for satisfaction, run to Christ. Sometimes we sin because we're longing for satisfaction and we refuse the fountain of living water and run to them. Other times, we run to sin because we know deep pain. And we say something's got to deal with that pain. And the scripture tells us, cast our cares on him. Run to Him. And sometimes we pursue sin as a way to dole and deal with our pain. And it doesn't work. 
There's a reason why when you read through the Psalter, the greatest category of psalm in the Psalter is a psalm of lament. So what I want to encourage us to do is let's become a congregation that consistently feasts on Christ both in joy and in sorrow. When your pain is deep, say, I'm going to know the fellowship of suffering that the Bible talks about. I'm going to run to him and I'm going to be with him in my tears and in my hurting and in my crying and in my questioning until I know his fellowship. And I'm going to taste and see that he is good. And in my joy, I'm going to run to him because I'm cultivating an appetite of feasting for Christ. Not this age. And so brothers and sisters, Here's what Paul holds out to us. This age is coming to an end. Don't live like everybody else. Don't just drift along. The age to come is at hand. Let's live differently. Think differently. Be focused differently. And what that means is cast off and make no provision for sin. But instead set your mind on Christ. Your faith, your hope, and your love on all that you have in Christ. And feast in him and walk differently. Now if you're not a believer. Where this needs to start for you. Is in return repenting of your sin and turning from relying on anything in yourself to be right before God. There's nothing we can do to be right before God in and of ourselves. But God's made us a way. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, who died on the cross to pay for our sins, who was raised from the dead on the third day. And the Bible says that if you and I turn from our sins and place our faith in Christ, then he'll forgive us of our sins and credit us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So I want to plead with you today if you're an unbeliever. I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. But you might say, but if I place my faith in Jesus Christ, nobody knows about that. That's right. Here's what the Bible says. The way we make that known is by being baptized. Jesus gave us this ordinance of of actually being immersed in water and brought back up so that it might be both a confession of our mouth, I trust in Christ, and that it might be a visible proclamation that today we are saying, Our faith is in the one who lived and died and was buried and who rose from the dead. So if you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. If you want to talk, (coughs) excuse me, if you want to talk to me or one of your Christian neighbors more after the service, we'd love to talk to you. I want to plead with you to trust in Christ. If you are a believer, let our response to this text be, I'm going to wake up, live intentionally, cast off work of darkness, making no provision for them, and I'm going to feast on Jesus Christ. And therefore, again, it is perfectly fitting that when Jesus Christ wanted us to remember what we have in him, he gave us a meal, something that might remind us that we feast on him. So we're going to take a moment of silence this morning as the ushers and musicians get in place, and then we're going to distribute the bread and the cup together so that we might eat together and drink together, remembering what we have in Christ, feasting on him, delighting in his grace. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table.